Hello, and welcome to Better Betting. Here are your hosts, the King of Timonium, Gary Quill, and the ruler of the replays, Eric Rubin. Hey, and welcome to Better Betting. My name is Eric Rubin, and I'm here with my partner, the King of Timonium, Gary Quill. GQ, how be you? Doing fine, Eric. Even even though uh, it's kind of a gloomy day, but sun will be out and racing will be fine. And hopefully the weather in the mid-Atlantic stays well for the next couple months so that turf racing can continue because I'm all about that. But that's not what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about a little something a little different. Yeah, this is going to be a little different show for us uh, for two reasons. First of all, uh, instead of having a guest talk about handicapping and betting, nothing like that. Uh, we're going to have a guest talk about aftercare, and we'll get to that in a few moments, a really important topic, uh, hopefully for everyone, but for the industry. And secondly, instead of handicapping a pick five sequence that we often do and go over five races, we're really going to talk about vertical betting today. And we'll focus maybe on one or two races, but it's really going to be about do's and don'ts of vertical wagering, some ideas that we have uh, for vertical wagers and things that often have worked and, and things that haven't worked. So we'll, we'll get to that later in the show. Uh, and before we bring in our guests, just a, a couple of things to talk about. One of the reasons we're not, uh, we picked this week, I should say, to do this is because to me, it's kind of a quiet week other than the Pennsylvania Derby stuff going on. And I just have a problem betting parks for a lot of reasons. A lot of them have nothing to do with even the betting aspect of horse racing, but the fact that they have insane takeout rates and the fact that they have a jackpot pick five. It's one thing to have a jackpot pick, pick six. That's awful. But a pick five, when you're a track that takes a lot of money, is near impossible to have a single winner. So having a jackpot pick five is so disingenuous. It's, it's just awful. So um, I don't know if they're doing a mandatory payout on uh, Pennsylvania Derby Day. I actually looked. I didn't see anything about it. I assume they are. But if they're not, please do not bet the pick five on Saturday, if you are betting parks, if it is a jackpot betting, we can argue even if it's a mandatory payout, we shouldn't support it. And I definitely will not be. So we're not going to cover parks. There's not huge races elsewhere. So we're going to pick this week to go over some vertical betting stuff. But before we do that, a few things you wanted to mention. Yeah, well, we can, I can cross off all my connections at parks for possible future guests. Um, <laughs> I, I have to mention... Someone, someone on Twitter that I've never mentioned or we've never mentioned on Twitter, so we'll be able to tag him as, as hopefully um, when, when you uh, post the podcast link. Uh, there's a gentleman on Twitter by the name. He goes by the Twitter handle of Papa Bees. I don't know. Uh, he, he's got a pretty good following. I thought he had the tweet of the day uh, on Wednesday when for the Pennsylvania Derby, it became known that Bob Baffert had intentions of scratching Medina spirit. And his excuse was that yeah, the horse is good, but I don't, I don't like to put horses on a plane and, and ship them across the country unless I feel real good about them. And then he also referenced a uh, possible post position uh, issue because after all post position nine is a horrible um post position right so papa b's uh his tweet of the day which i thought was kind of clever he goes i really can't blame baffert for not wanting to go to parks 
I'm a, I, I live 20 minutes away and I'm, I'm not sure if I want to go. <laughs> so, uh, kudos to Papa bees for that, uh, um, tweet. Uh, and I, I have to mention that based on, uh, last week's better beer bets, you came out ahead two cold ones to my zero as, um, we had a wager in the Belmont race eight last Saturday where uh, you were all over uh, an eight to one out first who had a horrible trip and just missed getting up for the win. Uh, whereas my horse, the 10 horse, who was actually snicket four to one morning line, went off three to one and went out early instead you know went chasing the speed and backed up like a city uh trash truck uh mid-stretch so there there was one victory or one beverage uh for eric and then in the 11th race i decided to to back uh a four to one morning line advance notice who actually was bet to the lukewarm five to two favorite Ran sixth, just a length behind Eric's selection, Trash Talker, which he could easily be doing right now. Um, Trash Talker went off seven to one. So uh, Eric is two beverages to the good in our beverage beer betting, which we probably won't have this week since we're really not doing any specific handicapping. And um, I have a new laptop on order, so I didn't get a chance to look at any pps uh but um so yeah so uh good good uh good times for eric next time we meet uh and who knows he, I, I might be owning more than two beverages by time that happens so without further ado we'll get into the quill question of the week which is kind of in line with uh, the fact that Eric said about takeout. So, my, and since Eric's all about just making wagers on tracks and or race wagers that have low takeouts, why is it important for someone to be cognizant of a takeout? And, you know, what, what does that mean to the average better to take out, say, and, and some tracks who have a special low one, like I know Laurel always used to say, oh, industry low 12% takeout on the pick five, whereas some tracks have mid 20% up to upper 20% takeout on some of their bets. So what does that basically mean? And why does that turn off the more skilled handicappers? Well, you've had some tough questions of the week. This one is, is pretty straightforward and uh, simple to answer. Uh, the takeout is what the track is taking out of the bet. So if there's $100 in the pool, let's say the wind pool attracts $100 and the takeout is 15%, that means the track keeps 15 of that $100. $85 is returned to the betters, the winning betters. So the higher the takeout, the less is going back to the betters. And I mean, if you think about your ROI, I'm happy because I'm a DRF customer, DRF bets. That's my main uh, betting app. I get a lot of perks with that, so I enjoy it. They finally 
have a feature where you can see your ROI. So when I look at my ROI, um, since August 1st, for example, I'm plus 17%. I know I was bad in the summer. I had a good start to the year, bad, bad middle of the year, and now good ending or whatever this is. But my takeout, it's hard to figure out the exact takeout. Most of my bets are probably pick fives, majority of them, which every track's a little different, but roughly 15% takeout. And that's probably like 75% of the money I bet. So I'm guessing the takeout of my bet is about 18% overall, 17%. That's about the average takeout. And if I'm at plus 17% with that takeout, now imagine, let's just do a total you know, um, exaggeration. Imagine the takeout instead of 17% of my bets was 34% double. You know, I'm losing a huge chunk of that profit that I would be making. And eventually I wouldn't be profiting at all uh, based on that takeout. So it's really important to understand takeout. Now, listen, if it's 17% to 20%, it's a significant difference. But if there's a 17% takeout and it's a pick five and it's like six horse fields and just I don't like the races. And then there's another track that's 22, let's say even percent takeout, but it's huge fields. You know, I might be more inclined to play that the big fields because I feel that, you know, hopefully as a better and handicapper, I have some kind of, well, maybe I don't, but I feel like I have some kind of advantage and, you know, that's my strength, the bigger field. So um, for me, I'll bet a little higher takeout, but generally I'm trying to avoid the higher takeout tracks. Parks, I, I avoid, I mean, I like Woodbine, but because they have huge fields, but even there, I don't bet as much as I would because of the higher takeouts. Um, and, and I like Laurel Racing because Maryland, I'm a pick five guy and it's 12% takeout. I got a lot into Canterbury because of the 10% takeout. Um, and, and it really is an important factor when you bet. And one reason I bet mostly pick fives, it's not just that I'm more comfortable betting pick fives and I feel that I'm better suited for it, my style. But the fact is, it's a much lower takeout. If I was betting strictly vertically and forget about win, play, show, uh, talking about exactish, try, supers, you know, the takeout is often at tracks in the low to mid 20s. So instead of getting 15% takeout or 16 on my bets, I'd be getting 25% takeout. That would take a huge chunk out of my ROI. So that's, uh, I don't know if that answers the question, but takeout should be something that you factor in to your bets, definitely. Yeah, it certainly does. And to the uh, average better who kind of just looks at what, what tracks, you know, every, everybody I, I have friends who are casual betters all they're interested in is oh this there there's a race that has a five hundred thousand dollar purse let's bet it i for whatever reason you know i, I don't i don't care if it's a fifteen thousand dollar purse or a five hundred thousand dollar purse if i have a strong opinion that's why i'm going to try try to bet it but uh i certainly understand the fact uh, that that you know you're there's less money coming back to the better uh, when they do cash. And um, uh, I think if, if more betters were cognizant of that and would not bet sequences at tracks that have large takeouts, then maybe things would change. Who knows? But no, thanks, Eric, for answering that and hopefully enlightening some of our listeners. So you take it away with um, how you want to approach uh, the vertical betting um, sequence. All right, well, well, first of all, before we do that, um, I know it was earlier, so it's confusing for GQ to uh, remember the script. But uh, <laughs> we, uh, we sat down earlier with our special guest this week. I guess you know who it is because you saw the, the link. But Michelle Pasula Kugler sat down with us earlier. We know Michelle through Wasabi Venture Stables, and both of us have gotten to know her uh, 
fairly well. Uh, and she has recently, she's long been involved in horse aftercare, and she'll talk about that. And she recently started her own venture into uh, aftercare, uh, the Horse Fund. And you can find them at thehorsefund.org. And GQ and Michelle especially will talk a lot about that. And I think it's so important. And it's not just lip service. It's so important uh, to support horses after. And someone who uh, owned a horse for a long time, my former wife now has that horse, but uh, pleasure horse that she rides uh, and, and being involved in ownership in, um, in horse racing. Uh, and, and when you're around horses, I was going to the barn a lot and you see these, you, you know, they're animals. They're, they're not pets as Michelle refers to necessarily, but they're, you feel like family pets and uh, to think of terrible things happening to them after they're done racing is really uh, sad to me uh, and, and should be to everyone. So to get involved, even if it's just a little bit is a real big help. So earlier today, uh, GQ sat down with Michelle and um, talked to her about the aftercare world and a few other topics. So we're going to play that now. And when we're done, stick with us. We're going to talk a lot about vertical betting, what to do, what not to do, and some examples. So here's Michelle with GQ. Hey, Michelle. How you doing? Welcome to the program. Hey, Gary. Hey, Eric. It's good to be here today. It's a, a pleasure having you on your you're our first guest who will not be speaking primarily about horse racing and handicapping. It's, a, it's going to be a welcome uh, twist uh, based on your involvement uh, in the horse racing in industry, which really is about aftercare. We'll get into details more about that later. But as usual with all of our guests, I like to start out by asking how you got involved in horse racing or how your interest, your initial interest in horse racing. So how did that all happen for you? Well, I was dating this guy named TK and um, sounds like a, sounds like a real winner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, we both were previously married and we have each have children from our first marriages. And he, when we were at the point where we were introducing our children to each other, he said, let's take all the kids to the racetrack. And I said, well, you do whatever you want with your children, but my kids are not going to that sort of place. <laughs> and, um, and uh, as a note, I grew up and lived in New Hampshire. And so there was very little horse racing there. Uh, there are Suffolk Downs. Park. Yeah, yeah, and I think Rockingham. And that may on, have been closed by the time you understood uh, what it, horse racing was. Exactly. So TK said, wait a minute, you must never have been to a track. Let's go to Suffolk Downs. And we went for an afternoon of racing. And I thought, oh, this is really fun. This is nothing like I thought it was. And so, you know, once in a while, we'd go to the track. We'd come, travel to Maryland, go to horse racing there. And uh, that was really my first introduction to horse racing, but I was hooked right away. But as you note, I am not a handicapper, um, but it was more watching these uh, horse athletes, you know, just perform. And I thought it was pretty amazing. Sure. So, so based on your initial, hey, let's take the kids to the uh, racetrack, was this pre or post nuptials <laughs> pre pre we were still just dating it almost was a deal breaker is what i was thinking <laughs> so so i guess uh, um, let, let me guess that your preconceived notion was 
a bunch of guys smoking stogies, hanging out, puffing smoke everywhere Mm -hmm. and just, you know, cussing and and just uh, not a place, not a family atmosphere. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's one of those things now that anytime I talk to people about horse racing or ever since that first trip to Suffolk Downs, I try to explain to people what a great source of entertainment it really is, you know, bring the kids and, uh, you know, or make it a date night. And it's a good amount of entertainment. So it's fair to say the the horse racing suggestion went from almost a deal breaker to a deal maker because it was like, wow, this guy's okay. He introduced (laughs) me and my family to something that is better than I thought. So that was another notch on TK's belt. There you go. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it's awesome. So TK, as you alluded to, you know, we've mentioned him many a times because of our affiliation with Wasabi Stables. And TK started Wasabi probably about five years ago. So I'm sure that idea was in his head for many years prior. So so take us back to the first time he had said, hey, I have this crazy idea. Right. So that was probably 2014 or 15 that he started talking about, you know, he wanted to be involved with horse horse racing. I was familiar with his family's uh, history with horse racing. And at that point, uh, our younger daughter was in high school still, the only one living at home full time. And I said, you know what, because we both have been involved with the startup world, me for less time than him. But, you know, I said, but this could be the first startup thing we could really do together except that we were living in New Hampshire and there was no horse racing there. And I said, if we're going to do this together, I want to be able to travel with you. And I'm not going to do that. Well, I have a kid, you know, one of our kids mm-hmm. in high school. Um, so let's just get her through high school and off to college and then we can do it. And so the joke in our family is that dear Sam is crossing the high school graduation stage and TK is on his phone trying to buy a horse. Um, which the timing does fall about that because we started in 2016 and she graduated from high school then. And um, yeah, you know, and I thought this was a great idea, but I didn't really know what my role would be at that point. I, sure. in fact, uh, I was initially, initially I called myself the community evangelist and I, you know, just was all about, you know, bringing fun to the group mainly through Slack. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and that's what you, you did. I mean, you, you jumped in and, and, you know, we, we met since I was one of the first members mm-hmm. we met and that I, I had a feeling that you were just the supportive spouse, that you were more of a hands off this TK's thing. I'm just here to support him type of thing. But as time went on, I realized how much involvement you had. And, and you embrace that. So um, tell us about some of those early roles uh, that, that uh, you took on. Sure. So initially, you know, it was trying to bring some fun to, you know, we use Slack to, you know, having different events there and then uh, building a community through um, social media. You know, we have a good presence on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, um, organizing gatherings when we were at the track. Um, and as our club grew and we covered different areas, um, I brought along the idea of ambassadors for each of our tracks, you know, with horses at what, I think usually about five different tracks. It's hard, well, it's impossible to be at all of them, but sure. it's good to also have someone local where that they can schedule something every single month, you know, to get the club mm-hmm. that lives nearby together. Um, 
and just uh, let's see, we've done some contests, you know, for an assortment of reasons. Um, we we celebrate, you know, Slick William, our first win day every year. Yeah. Um, and and you know, we really kind of go with the flow. When COVID hit, we started doing. We did a, a stay at home Kentucky Derby party in September with all sorts of uh, prizes. So it really is. I always try to keep the club engaged and, you know, uh, make it fun, make Slack a fun and our community in general, a fun place to be. Yeah. And I think one of, one of the underrated things that you do for the club is you, you organize the distribution of all the winter circle photos, which I can, I I'm sure can be a nightmare at times. Well, especially when be. you're de- especially when you're dealing with trying to get the photos from the different tracks photographers exactly it can be it can be challenging um yeah and and over time you know and we'll get to the aftercare part in a bit but i've taken on things once we became a breeding operation um i work closely with george adams when to keep updates on the broodmares and the foals um I get the fun job of announcing all the foals arrivals and giving them nicknames, um, which really makes, you know, that kind of quiet time of year more exciting. And uh, a very unexciting job is I've over- taken over the financial piece. Um, we have, an, uh, you know, someone who does the professional accounting, but I'm the one who's inside uh, admin letting you know prize money that we've earned and then the bills that we've added on. So, you sure. know, it's, you know, a uh, mix of fun and, you know, serious stuff. That's cool. So, so yeah, so t- you're with, uh, I'm, I'm stumbling here, but uh, with the uh, um, big, uh, you know, push for aftercare based on all the animal rights af- activists involvement with how horses are treated, not just during their racing career, but then what happens to them afterwards. I mean, you came to the forefront with Wasabi in order to make sure that the wasabi horses who were retired could uh, could be relocated in uh, one of the aftercare. So, so talk about the aftercare program that wasabi uh, is involved in. Sure, and, and just to um, kind of give a deeper understanding of who I am, I have been an animal person my entire life. In fact, it dawned on me last year, uh, I didn't have a pet for like six months and uh, that's the longest <laughs> in my entire life because from the minute I have memories, my parents always had dogs and cats and I've had chickens and rabbits and, and so I'm an animal person. So sure. horses fill that role for me too, even though they don't live with me, um, you know, they're mm-hmm. still, and I know they're not pets, they're athletes, but they still feel that fill that animal spot for me. Um, so, you know, with us having this, racing organization, you know, the horses are important to me. And so, um, you know, TK and I have always, because I have to give him credit too, have always believed in aftercare. And, um, you know, there was one horse who we thought we were retiring very in the very beginning and gave it to someone um, and who worked the horse a few times and from that point on, I told TK, we got to make sure this paperwork is done right. You know, and the horse was fine and it ended up becoming a broodmare and it was all good. But, um, you know, it, that it, it came to me that we really need to focus on this and be uh, thoughtful into how our horses leave racing. Right. And what 
spurred me to start to put a monetary idea behind it was actually um, our club. So in July of 2019, we had a horse go down in a race and the horse was fine, but the jockey was injured. I don't know if you remember Felix, because we were, yes. uh, and Eric was with us at Suffolk Downs that day when that happened. And club members began messaging on Slack. And Felix, this was the first time he had ever ridden for us. And club members were so concerned. How can we help this man? And mm -hmm. we raised, I think, like over $1,000 to give to this man to help him during his recuperation. And it, right. and it made me think, if our club is this generous for a jockey, you know, who, you know, this is wonderful, what mm -hmm. would they do for our horses? And I, that, so that September, the next, when we had a horse retire, I simply said, it's a positive return. We're giving you money back. Can you leave $5 for aftercare? Sure. And I think almost every horse we've retired since then has had at least 80% of the co-owners leave um, $5. And typically in almost every horse, I get people who leave more. And there are people who will publicly say, oh, make it 10. And then I have a few people who will not be named because they don't want to, who will privately message me and say, um, I want it to be 25. I want it to be 50. And so we've been doing that now for the past two years. And I never ask on a horse that we don't give money back on because then they'd have to pay in. But occasionally I'll have people to let reach out and say, hey, I'd sure. still like to give money. And we do this for every horse, even if that's exiting our barn, whether it's a claim, a private sale or a retirement, it's still leaving our system. And so horses that are being retired, the money follows them to the retirement group it's going to, whether it be Beyond mm -hmm. the Wire, uh, New Beginnings in New Jersey. And if it's a horse that's claimed away um, or sold in a private sale, I do one of two things, which is either I put it into a rainy day fund for a horse that will retire and need a bigger check to go with it because it has some recuperation to go through, um, or I donate it to uh, the uh, accredited group nearest to the track that that horse was last running at. So like we've worked um, with New Start at Penn, giving them money, even though we don't retire a horse just to help their program. Nice. So, very, yeah. very good. Yeah. So, so get a little bit into detail because I, 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 we talked a little bit before we started recording about really don't think the average person, whether they're active handicapper or just uh, a casual observer of horses and horse racing, the expense that, that it takes in order to retire a horse. I think a lot of people just assume that Oh, okay. Well, you know, a horse can't run anymore. So just give him to one of these aftercare and they'll take the horse and they'll find another uh, home or a second career for him. Uh, it's a little bit more detailed than that. Sure. And every group has a different uh, minimum donation that they request. And it not only it's based on that and then the horse's health you know if you're sending a horse that is not perfectly fit it's going to need a longer time so they might ask for a bigger donation um the other thing to keep in mind is these groups even if you are sending a perfectly sound horse to an accredited group they're going to give them at least 30 if not 60 days of letdown time so they're you know and even if you're making a donation of $500, we know that does not take care of a horse for two right, months for, while they're hanging, yeah. you, know, you know, and they're going to still need, you know, treatments of sorts, even sound horses, you know, they need their hooves taken care of, they need their dental work done. And so these, 
donations these groups are asking for are really pretty small when you compare it to, you know, what it probably really costs to take mm-hmm. care of this horse. Um, so yeah, it's not as simple. And there are times too, where there are waiting lists because, um, you know, it just so happens that there are more horses needing to retire or there are fewer adoptions happening because, you know, a group can only hold so many horses. Sure. So, you, you know, you need one to get adopted to bring another <laughs> one in. So it's, uh, you know, and, and it, and it helps to, you know, you know, know these groups, right. To sure. make connections and support them too. You know, even if it's just once a week um, on social media, I make sure that we talk about aftercare and sometimes it's talking about horses of ours that we've been following. And sometimes um, like this week, uh, I promoted a horse that's up for adoption at Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue, you know, any little attention, maybe that horse gets a home. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, talk about the the different aftercare programs that you actively uh, are in connection with, whether it be, like you said, you try to do it since Wasabi has horses running all over the country, different tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are the names of some of these aftercare programs that you we support? Sure. So we've definitely we've worked with uh, New Beginnings and second chances up in New Jersey. We have a good relationship with this old horse in Minnesota. In fact, when we, uh, TK and I were there this summer, they hosted an open house for the Wasabi, any people from Wasabi who wanted to come, which was pretty amazing. Hmm. Um, I've worked with Beyond the Wire, Mid-Atlantic Horse Rescue, um, After the Races in Foxy G in Maryland, uh, New Start in Penn, and Oh, Charlestown. Uh, I'm, their name is escaping me. Um, oh, you just, you just spit out about a dozen different programs. <laughs> oh, so. there are more. So, you know, <laughs> if, if a few escape you, it's no, 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 no problem. It, I, I just wanted you to start listing some to give people the appreciation of how many programs are out there. And yeah, they definitely are not, you know, there aren't any government funds, I'm sure, helping these uh, rescues out, uh, and they're they're self-serving, and they need funds in order to to make it happen. And you, the one that you mentioned, Second Chance, I came across Second Chance because I thought it was kind of neat. I went up to Monmouth Park one day, and they had a little booth, and they just had all kinds of old horse racing memorabilia. They had programs, they had jockey sign um, goggles, they had uh, t-shirts, anything that possibly was donated to them and they're selling it at the track to help funds. So I like picked up a few things and I kind of just felt, felt good that whatever the cost was for the items that I picked out, I just gave them an extra donation just because of knowing that they were one of the programs that uh, Wasabi supported. Uh, And uh, so it was cool. So anybody out there, if you have horse racing memorabilia that you're looking to get rid of, maybe uh, contact one of the local um, aftercare programs and maybe they can make some money off of it. That that might be something cool. So you're involved with the aftercare, but that kind of spurned uh, another idea for you in developing uh, the horse fund. Talk about that. Sure. So um, it its basis was actually um, a sad event. So 
this past March on St. Patrick's Day of all days, um, our horse Shamrock Kid broke down in training. And it was a very unhappy St. Patrick's Day. And especially but, for a horse by the name of Shamrock I, Kid. I know. Talk, talk about uh, life being unfair. Exactly. And, you know, we were heartbroken. And once again, um, our club amazes me. So he had a positive return. And as I went to close him out, one club member said, and, you know, I said, if you want to leave $5, we're going to make a donation. And someone said, I'm going to make it 50. And they did it in our, in the Shamrock Kid channel. So now the gauntlet has been thrown down. <laughs> and the second person says 50. And the third person says 50. And I think the rest of the club was like, well, and I had a few people and I, you know what I, I didn't judge anyone because I did definitely have a few people who were like, I really kind of need this money. I'm going to just give you 10. And I'm like, hey, you know what? You giving me anything is just wonderful. And so we raised, I think initially $1,400. I mean, in a typical horse close out of ours is like two to $300. So I was astounded. So I reached out to Charlestown to their aftercare. That's it. Aftercare Charlestown. That is their name. And, um, and I said, look, this is a bigger donation than we normally make. Can we do something special with it? What, what can we do with this amount of money? And the woman I spoke with there said, well, we have a horse. She's being retired through track TRRAC in Pennsylvania. And um, she's going to need rehab and it would probably be at least $2,500. So I came back to the club and I had a few people. No, that's not true. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Um, right. I told the, I told the club as a whole that we had raised $1,400 because I, we had just kept this within Shamrock. So I told community and we raised like another $400. So when we got to 1800, you know, she told me the number was 25 and I just said, Hey, we're really close. We're at 1800 and the club pretty much TK and I threw in a little money, got it to $2,500 so that we would ensure the rehabilitation of Spooky Moon. Not that it was going was not going to happen, but now we are paying for it. So we kind of semi-adopted this horse. Sure. And, and Aftercare Charlestown reached out to the owners to make sure they were fine with us doing this and taking a little credit. And they were <laughs> thrilled. They sent us pictures. And so we got Hi. to follow her rehab. And now she uh, she was there for about two months. And she has a new owner and she has a great new life. And it just... I just can't tell you how amazingly warm and fuzzy it makes me feel to have our club just be so generous. I mean, I, we all say, so many people in horse racing say, oh, I believe in aftercare. But when you put your dollars behind that, it just, right. you know, I, I am just so amazed by the generosity and kindness of our club. And I, after that happened, I thought, you know, I think I want to build a standalone aftercare initiative um, and so I can stop there or I can just keep talking and tell you the <laughs> well, what I did. <laughs> well, no, I, I want you to keep talking because I mean, part of ha having people on, uh, you're, 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 you're bringing, you're, you're using your time and you have something that is certainly a worthwhile, it's not like you're hawking something that you're trying to make money on yourself. This is for a worthy cause. And I think it needs to go out there and, and have some legs so that uh, people either follow you or uh, just follow uh, Wasabi or 
just get go to the and, and get involved. So yeah, talk, please, you know, expand upon it. So I uh, started thinking about, you know, how I could build this basically fundraising initiative. And one of my initial thoughts was that if I made it into a true nonprofit, a 501c3 certified um, um, business, then possibly I'd have the ability to fundraise even more. I mean, our club is very generous, but if you, if, a club member knew I get this as a tax write-off that $5 may become $50 more often. Right. And it's going to a good cause. So I started doing, having some conversations. Um, I'm friendly with Jen Royce with the retired racehorse project. Mm -hmm. And she and I talked about it and she was honest and said, you know, it's a lot of work to get that 501 C three certification, you know, but do what you want. She wasn't, but she just wanted yeah. me to have, she said, cause she's known other groups that have thought about it and it's not worth it. But she did introduce mm-hmm. me to uh, Aaron Birkenhauer from West Point because West Point has their own charitable division. And okay. I talked with Aaron and found out how they did it, what they did. And I put it on the back burner. I thought, well, maybe I don't want to jump through these hoops. And then uh, I thought about some more and said, that's ridiculous. I'm a go-getter. <laughs> I'm going to make this happen. And so right after uh, Shamrock this spring, I started creating a business plan for this and I recruited board members. Uh, George Adams, our bloodstock agent, is our vice president and Jordan Egan with the Maryland Horse Breeders is uh, our secretary. And we held our first official meeting in May. In in beginning of April, we received our uh, nonprofit corporation status in the state of Florida. And in July, I submitted paperwork to become 501c3 compliant. And based on the IRS website, I check every couple of weeks. uh, They've gotten through paperwork that's been submitted through June. So I expect to get an answer hopefully by November um, as to whether we meet their standards. That's Um, awesome. It is awesome. I just am really excited for what we can possibly do for aftercare. Wow. That, that is great. And uh, just going back to what you were saying about the Wasabi club members or the, just the members in Shamrock kid raising that money. I think a lot of people are more in tune with a lot of these horse racing syndicates that people who are in on a horse are in on a very small percentage. I'm talking fractional percentages, whereas the Wasabi people, you know, the, the deal with Wasabi is that whenever Wasabi gets a horse, they make 80% available and members can get anywhere between 1% to 44.99% of the horse. So do the math. At best, or at most, you'll have 80 people if everybody just wants 1% of the horse. Mm-hmm. So um, when you, you're talking $1,400 in a small group like that, it's it becomes impressive. And um, it just goes to show the, t- the type of people uh, that uh, Wasabi Venture Stables have, have attracted uh, due to um, how easy it is to be a partner uh, in, in Wasabi. So yeah, that that's awesome. So uh, with the horsefund.org, um, you had said that uh, you have some short-term goals and some long-term goals. I sure do. So first, I want to 
to benefit our club members who are so generous and you don't have to be a club member. I'll take money <laughs> for the horses. <laughs> you know, my parents could send a check if they would like, cause they are not club members. Um, but, uh, cause they're going to be listening to this. <laughs> right. Right. Um, uh, that, uh, to give them some, you know, a way to get a benefit from that so that, you know, we'll have that compliance that I can send you, you know, uh, you know, for your charitable donations. Um, but initially I want to have a fund on hand so that when a horse uh, retires, if it's going to need some rehabilitation, we have the money to support that. Um, we've always had the money, but honestly, there have been a number of horses where the club race is $200 and Tiki and I personally put in $300 to get to that marker. Sure. Um, and, and not that we won't still continue to donate, but you know, I, I think it's good for our club to really be behind that. Um, I also, so, you know, initially I just want that sort of money on hand. The next thing that I want to do is to have a reserve so that if we have a horse that was one of ours and no longer is, and that seems like it's time for it to retire, that we could hopefully go and privately buy the horse. But if we had to even just claim a horse to get it into right. retirement, um, cause that is one of the things that, uh, uh, West Point talked about with me is that they have a fund and they track their horses, which is was why, you know, I've been tracking our horses. It's to be able to go to a trainer or an owner and say, look, I appreciate this horse has a value. Let me buy it from you. Let me buy it and give it a home. And nice. then my really big goal, which is going to be, you know, years down the road, would be able to have some sort of property or a piece of a property where we could have a field dedicated to our horses oh, so wow. that when a horse needs to retire, it's not waiting in line for a spot. It would be well at the, this horse fund field we've got, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't need to be big, but you know, a place where we could just ship our horse. The biggest expense would be shipping them there because we're already there, you know? So sure. um, that's one of my big goals there. Uh, there's a few small farms in, in Lexington. I'm sure that you guys could <laughs> put an offer in on. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it, and it's funny you mentioned that about going to owners of horses that uh, we've had in the past and make an offer. Uh, the recently concluded Timonium Maryland state fair meet, there was a horse, a 10 year old gelding by the name of monkey metal who was a very good horse at, at one point in time, but because he was a gelding, they just threw him out on the track every once in a while. And the ironic thing was that, you know, he ran at Timonium and he was, he was far from the favorite, but he wound up winning that race. And I saw in the results that he was claimed. And I thought who would claim a 10 year old gelding with like 140 starts? Well, long story short, trainer Tim Keefe who is based in Maryland used to have the horse and he claimed it for the exact reason what you were saying maybe he was unsuccessful in contacting the owner mm -hmm. offering to buy and they were like well if you want the horse you can claim them type of thing and that's mm -hmm. exactly what he did so yeah that's wonderful it, it, yeah it's good it's good to hear that um you know there there are many other people especially trainers who who feel that way about the, their past horses so it's great to hear that the horse fund is heading in that direction as well so i know we're when when we uh post this uh 
interview and this week's podcast, um, we'll put out your um, uh, Twitter, but correct me if I'm wrong. Are you at Mrs. PQ? Is that the deal? It's Ms. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Ms. MS underscore PQ. Okay. And that's because it's a combination of your last name. Yes. And my uh, corporation is Piku also. So oh, okay. handily. Cool. So, so outside of all the involvement with Wasabi and the aftercare and the horse fund, and before I let Eric ask any questions, <laughs> you're also sort of a wine connoisseur, no? Or is it, or is it more food related? Well, um, it's a little of both. So um, I have a long running food blog. I built it in 2007 called Think Tasty. It's actually on hiatus, has been for about six months, but the website thinktasty.com still exists. And I okay. think I have about like a thousand recipes I've published over the wow. years. Yeah. So like cooking is my passion. Um, one of those things I really enjoy and for, and, and I still monetize it a little bit, you know, it's a blog that I've been running and it was part of my uh, whole, uh, I have a whole uh, set of publications, which is where the Piku name comes in. It's Piku Publications. Okay. Um, but the wine part, that's newer. That's younger than the stables, in fact. I did a trip to vineyards and thought, huh, I need to do something else. So I've taken a couple of wine classes and I have the world's, it's the world's worst title. I am a wine and spirit education trust level three certified with distinction. Um, <laughs> which that's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. And I am not a sommelier. Um, that's way above my pay grade. But I know a decent amount about wine and what um, I have a, so I do have a website for that too. It's pikuwine.com. And uh, every week I post, it's a newer website, so it's only a, a handful of articles deep at this point, but educating on wine. But I also do wine education lessons. Um, and I, what I really enjoy doing is working either with large groups, like I did, a, I hosted an event for a, a sales team. So that, and it was online, we talked and just did a tasting. But I also love working with people who are newer to wine um, and just educating them on, get, trying to remove away the snobbishness of wine and just get down to what do you like and why do you like it? Um, and kind of nice. educating people on that. Yeah. Cool. So I, I knowing everything that you're involved in, it, uh, I kind of get the feeling that you've kind of joined the PK's way of life in that he basically sleeps two hours out of a 24-hour period. <laughs> <laughs> Based on everything you're involved in, it sounds like you're living on that uh, amount of sleep as well. You know, I sleep pretty well, but it's one of those things when I, uh, you know, I, I used to be an, a teacher. I left education in 2008. And so for the past 13 years, everything I've done has been entrepreneurial and work from home. And I can tell you when I first started doing it, I remember thinking, oh, you know, it's great. You can set your own schedule. Um, but there's really never a day off. But I don't say that as a complaint because I do have the ability to it's, you know, 245 on a Thursday. And I was able to take this time to talk with both of you um, because I set my own schedule. But like on a Saturday, I'm guaranteed I'm going to work a couple hours during the day. It's just part. I, I honestly don't know what I would do if I weren't working every single day. And it, it truly is not a complaint because there are yeah. lots of privileges that come with, it, with this lifestyle. So um, 
but yeah, there, I like, but my mom would tell you this. I've oh, like, I used to have a calendar when I was, I don't know, in my teenage years. And I was upset when there was a day with that, that was empty. I would be like, well, we need an event in there, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. So it's, that, that seems to be one of the hazards of working from home is that you feel like you're never really end of the day. Right. It just kind of, you're in that work mode all, all, all the time for, for good or bad. So, well, yeah. Michelle, uh, before I turn it over to Eric with his questions, thanks a lot for enlightening us and all of our listeners for uh, about everything that uh, you do for horse racing. And I certainly hope that uh, um, the horsefund.org uh reaches all those goals that that you're after because it certainly is, it sounds like a great idea for making sure our heroes on the track remain that way off the track so thanks again so eric are you uh still awake are you really- <laughs> of, of course as long as michelle was doing the talking i was awake i want to talk about the questioner actually gq i wrote down i don't know 70 questions here i can show you the paper and then every time you ask a question about it, I crossed it out. <laughs> you got everything. So how did I do? Good, you did an excellent job with the questions and Michelle did excellent with the answers. So I'll just end it on uh, with one question. For our listeners out there who want to get involved, who want to help out. I mean, mm-hmm. before I got involved with Wasabi and knew a little more about aftercare, which thank you for enlightening me and, and the others. I always care. And GQ mentioned this in the question. I cared about aftercare. You know, I cared about the horses, but I didn't know what to do. And then you hear of all these scams that are going on. Uh, I forgot the name of the woman who went on the run after stealing money down in Louisiana. So for our listeners out there who want to get involved and are new to this, what would you suggest they do? Well, there are a lot of things. I mean, if I'm going to be selfish, I would say, you know, um, (laughs) don't donate to the horse fund. But yeah. you could also do something as simple as even just uh, going to the website and subscribing to our newsletter. Uh, it'll be a monthly newsletter and it'll tell you about our fundraising we're doing and we'll be highlighting retired horses. But outside of my selfish wants, um, find an aftercare group near you and do what you can to support them. And support doesn't always have to even be monetary. If you're on social media and they post something, retweet it, share it on Facebook you know, add a comment to Instagram and tag somebody else to get, you know, attention is really crucial to these groups. Um, they're also looking besides, um, you know, monetary donations, they're quite often looking for, you know, uh, supplies that they may need, or even just volunteers, if you have an interest in, you know, being near horses, um, you know, and even if you don't want to be near horses, plenty of groups are looking for people to help with even, you know, more of like bookkeeping or, you know, uh, all sorts of things. So if this is something of interest to you, find a group near you that you are interested in, you know, and uh, offer them your time. Is it as simple as Googling aftercare horses after? Oh, so if you go, if you're, um, I would go to like the TAA and go to see, they'll have a list of accredited uh, aftercare facilities and they rank, uh, organize it by state so you can find one near you. Okay, that's TAA Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. Is that mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. Just so people can yeah, hear. Yeah, it's it's Perfect. yes, it's it's good to find groups that are accredited so that you can avoid the uh, as you mentioned the crazy scams. Mm-hmm. Excellent. 
All right, we kept you for a really long time. GQ or, or Michelle, is there anything that I or we missed that uh, you want to talk about? Uh, no, I think we're good. Um, I'm really excited because we just, I did, although, you know, I, you know, started my first board meeting in May, I launched it to Wasabi in September because I really wanted it all buttoned up before I did that. And I made it very clear to them that we're not even 501c3 compliant. And the amount of donations that came in that night were just amazing. And wow. um, yeah, and so if you're interested in making a donation, which again, there's no obligation to do so. Um, I, we to try and sweeten the deal a little bit. I'm offering a subscription model where you can, you know, through PayPal, send X amount of dollars every month. The number's up to you. But once you hit $100 in a calendar year, so whether it's a one-time payment or you do a subscription, uh, I just had lapel pins made, kind of like we had for Wasabi or have for Wasabi, yep. except they're the Horse Fun logo. So oh, nice. that seems to be pretty exciting. And you know, in the future, we're going to. Um, uh, continue with the aftercare auction, which we didn't even talk about. That's been an annual event that we've held twice. But we're also going to be auctioning off some wasabi items uh, that uh, we've collected and fundraising that way. So those are some things to be looking forward to in the future. Does the Horse Fund have a Twitter account? Uh, we do. It is, and it is the Horse Fund. Wonderful. Easy to remember. Yes. Trying to keep it simple. Yep. All right. On that note, I think uh, we want to thank you, Michelle, for staying so long with us and truly, truly our most important segment because for all the handicapping we do and talk about betting, this is obviously head and shoulders above that. So thanks for coming on and shedding light. And I hope people out there will check out thehorsefund.org and uh, hopefully donate as well. So thanks, Michelle. Right. Well, thank you very much, Eric and Gary. You have a good evening and uh, I'm sure I'll see you around Slack. Definitely. Certainly. Thanks. Take care. Okay, so we thank Michelle for joining us. Uh, just a, a, a great cause. And, you know, with these aftercare programs, I am always worried about um, who's legit, who is not. I know they have TAA accreditation, so that helps. But knowing Michelle, it's nice to know someone who's a good person. And uh, I know I can give money and, and be confident that it's going to be used for a good cause in the right way. So uh, I hope people out there, we usually don't sell things on this program, but I really hope people out there uh, are, are thinking about, if not, if nothing else, just go to her website or any website uh, to help out uh, in the aftercare world. So now we're going to get back into our milieu, and that's the betting part. And uh, we talked a lot about horizontal bets. We often go through pick fours and pick five sequences. Today, we're going to talk about vertical betting and uh, how, I don't want to say how to bet vertically, a little bit of that, but some do's and don'ts of vertical betting. And we'll get some specifics and some examples which I think will help people understand. And I don't want people out there listening to think that I'm a know-it-all, a condescending person. I don't, and I'm not as strong vertically as I am horizontally, but I've had some nice vertical scores lately, I guess, so my confidence is high. So I'm like, yeah, let's do some vertical betting now that I'm on a roll here. But uh, listen, I don't have all the answers. There's a lot of ways to um, bet. There's a lot, a lot of different styles, I guess you can call it, that work. But there are some things that are right to do and some things that are wrong to do, and we can touch upon some of those. So I thought the first thing I'd do is deciding when to bet a race vertically, because many people go to the track and it's nine races, let's say, and they just bet every race. And that's fine. I'm not saying you shouldn't necessarily do that. But if you're trying to make money on the races, that might not always be the best strategy. So what do you look for? What should you look for when 
you better raise. And here are just some things that I would look for. And I've heard people, a lot of this is not just my information, but people I respect who make money in this game have said this. So one of the things that a lot of people like to look for is a vulnerable favorite. And that's probably the easiest and best thing to look for. Find a race where you find the favorite or a couple of the favorites, if there's no one standout favorite that you don't like. So maybe there's a five to two, a three to one and a three to one. And those are the three favorites in a 12 horse field. And yeah, you like one of them maybe, but two of them you don't like. If you can bet against two of the three favorites in a race where a lot of people might spread, that's going to be very, very helpful for you. So finding vulnerable favorites, and especially if you see a short price horse, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Lone Rock ran last weekend, and I can't say I didn't like Lone Rock. I honestly thought Lone Rock was going to win. But one of my horses that I love uh, for a long time was in that race, uh, the Tom Morley horse, whose name oh, locally owned. I saw him run it. Well, I didn't see him in person, but I bet him at Oaklawn like two years ago. And ever since then, I've, I've really followed the horse and liked the horse. Made some money on him when he came in second at Saratoga, and he should have won. He got bumped, and they didn't take down the winner. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I, I liked him. I didn't know if he could beat Lone Rock, but he was about 18 or, two, or I think he was like 30 to one even. I don't even remember the exact odds. Lone Rock was one to nine. Like, listen, is Lone Rock going to win? Yeah, probably. But he has to win like 60 times or whatever the math was. Uh, you know, is he 60 more times likely to win than locally owned or whatever the math was? I said, no. So I'll take a stab at locally owned. So I made a few bucks. Unfortunately, I didn't hit the pick five, even though I was alive for 120,000, 80,000, et cetera. But the point was that uh, sometimes you're not picking the horse that you like the most, but if you find a favorite that either is vulnerable or you can make a case, even a small case against him, that's a good time to go uh, go at it, that race. Another reason to bet a race might be a strong opinion. I Even if it is on a favorite per se, but there are some races I look at and I'm like, I really don't know. Now, if it's in a pick five sequence, I'll probably still bet the pick five if I like other legs in the pick five. But vertically, I have a very easy time just passing on a race. Some people can't do that. I understand. If you can't, lower your bet a lot, in my opinion. So if your typical bet is, I don't know, you bet $20, $25 on a race. If you really just can't sit out, you're at the track, you don't want to sit out, bet four or five bucks on the race instead of 25 or 30 like you might normally if you don't have a strong opinion. I like to look for field size. It's not the end-all, be-all, but the larger the field typically uh, the more likely I am to bet a race. I think that helps. And then the other thing is, and it's tied into what I said about the strong opinion, um, it, it's important to not just bet every race equally. When I was younger, didn't know what I was doing, was losing money uh, probably by the barrels in this game. You know, I would bet very similar bets. I do this type of exacta, this type of triple. Each race would be $20 or $25. And I didn't know because that's how I learned. I didn't know that that's not a way to win money, but it's definitely not. So figure out what you're able to spend. And if you're able to spend $50 and if you want to make money, it might mean betting one race, betting $50 on one race that day or that weekend. I know it's hard to do that because you want to have fun. You want to bet a lot of races. But if you're looking to make money, that might be a good idea. Um, the other thing to look for is, you know, what kind of bet are you going to make if we're talking vertically? Are you betting win, play, show? Are you betting exactas, triple, superfectus? Well, I think there's a couple things there. First of all, we've talked about this before, but place and show, the math has shown that you lose money betting place and show. You give away uh, a couple percent. It's not a huge amount, but you're giving away a little bit. One way you can do this, now you need a huge sample size, but one thing that I did is I looked at results uh, and I went back weeks 
and I just picked Belmont and I did like the number one. And I said, all right, I'm going to assume I didn't bet the number one in that race, either $6 to win, $2, uh, $3 to win in place, or $2 across the board. So I had a $2 across the board bet, a $3 uh, win place bet, or a $6 win bet, all $6 bets. And I said, all right, the one came in third. He paid $220 to show. So on the win, just a win bet, I got zero. On the win place bet, I got zero because he came in third. And on the show bet, he paid, I don't know, $3 to show. I forgot what I said. So on the win place show bet, I got $3 back. So on that bet, I got $3, I got zero. Do that, pick a number like one, and do that over dozens. And I mean, you really need thousands, but do it over a lot of races if you really don't believe me or the people saying this and see what comes out to more money. Now, again, you need a large sample size because if you get like a $90 winner, that's going to skew the sample to the win. Um, but after a while, you'll see a trend that the win bet is going to give more than the win place and the win place show, uh, the win bet is going to give you more than the win place show and the win place is going to give you more than the win place show. Basically, each time you go down from win to place and place to show, you're giving away a little bit of money. So I know it's nice to cash tickets, but it's not worthwhile. And I know, and GQ, you can jump in here, but- I know you're going to say, or you like to uh, sometimes bet play show. There was a horse I, I kind of gave you because we were talking about claiming horses. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, he was like 10 to 1 or something. I said, I think he's going to win today. I want to claim him because he's going to clear his condition. And he ended up coming in second or third and had trouble actually, might have won. But, uh, and you had like a place or show bet. I don't know if you were being serious or not. Uh, but yeah, you're going to cash more tickets. Yeah, it's frustrating when you bet a 15 to 1 shot to win. He comes in second and he pays $12 to show. But you have to look at it long term. You're going to make money long term. All right, Gigi, I talked for a long time. Before I get into specifics of mistakes that people make, anything about what I just said? Well, here, here's the thing, and may, maybe I shouldn't even make this statement because majority of people will say, well, you're an idiot for uh, betting on the horses if you're this bad. No lie. I mean, there are horses that forget about chalk. You come up with a horse that is a decent price double digit odds you like the horse but you know that to me when i look at horses that i like and it it doesn't necessarily mean that i think they're going to win i think that at good odds they could run second or maybe even at real high odds they'll run third and the horse that you're talking about ran third and the horse paid seven dollars third, so he paid five to two. So, if you have a horse, is there shame in feeling that here's a horse that's twenty five to one? And I and here here's my statement. I I have to go back years before there was a horse that I liked that was a very long odds that the horse actually won. So you're trying to tell me that all these horses that I like, even though I don't have a real strong opinion that they can win, I should ditch that opinion and either just bet the horse to win regardless of the odds or stop handicapping that way, liking horses that I don't, feel like they can necessarily win at those odds. 
Well, first of all, if they're good enough to come in second or third, well, why can't once in a while they win? And you only need them to win once in a while at a big price. That's one thing. Because, because oh, GQ found them. That's why they don't well, necessarily win. That's a fair point. I, I got to factor that in. But no, seriously, listen, it's totally fine to think I found a 25 to one shot. I really don't think he's going to win, but I think he has a legitimate chance second or, or definitely third. My problem is, why bet place and show? Because like I said, the one time he wins, you're going to make more money. And secondly, if you really convince he's not winning, find another bet rather than place or show. It, let's say you won him for third. You've talked about this before. Key him for third. <laughs> find a, one, two, three other horses that you like and bet them over him in either an exacto or a triple if you want him in third, put him in third. Or supers even, you can put him in third. Um, if there's one other horse you definitely like, so let's say you like a 25 to one shot, you like a three to one, it doesn't matter the price, you like a three to one, and then there's like three others you're thinking maybe. So put the three to one, if you think your 25 to one is coming in third, put your 25 to one in third, put the three to one first, and put those other three horses second in the triple, and then put the three horses that you think maybe in first, put the three to one you like in second, keeping your 25 to one in third, if you don't want him anywhere but third or any better than third. I know you're not going to win as much as if you hit the, the show button all, has often, not as much money, but you'll hit more often with the show. Cause if he comes in second or first, you still get the show. If he comes in second or first and you've been in for third and a triple, you get nothing. But um, while you'll cash more often putting him in the show bet, the one time you get a 25 to one in third in a pick uh, in, in a triple, or if it's a super super, I mean, you're going to get paid so much more in that show that you're going to win more often. And that just kind of goes to my betting style and the people who generally win at this game, I think that I've spoken to is you, you, you can't just play for like, you know, I got a cash ticket. I got to cash a ticket. I got to cash. Oh, I went eight raises without cashing a ticket. I mean, I went to Belmont on Sunday uh, with a friend, Tony, and um, I don't know if you met him. I think you met him at the Preakness, but I could be wrong. I did meet Tony. Yeah, you did yes. meet Tony. So he went, we went to Belmont on Sunday, my first time to, uh, Belmont in two years or so. And I mean, I sucked all day. I had a, I actually singled like a 12 to one shot of one. And I didn't even have anything vertical uh, horizontally with him. Cause I lost a double. I lost a pick three, the other races I sucked. So I was getting killed all day. And I, I'm going to talk about the last race, but I ended up betting the last race and I hit and I made a good amount of money for the day, just hitting one race. And I, I could have easily gone, sh got shut out for that day. It happens to me all the time. I get shut out, but if you hit one bet, make it so it pays for 10, 20, 30 losing bets. That's, that's how I would approach it. But um, my point is, say, not to get off uh, on a tangent there too much, is if you do like a long shot like that, use them in your triple exact or something like that instead of the show uh, bet. Those, those are much better bets. And, and I would say bet them to win too, personally. But Oh, you know, I, I just know my history, my decades of history of, of wagering on horses and – you know, it, it just seems to be, you know, I'm a doubting Thomas based on what you're saying. But, hey, I, I don't want to take anything away from Michelle's um, uh, thehorsefund.org. But if there are interested people, I'll start at gqfund.org and we can do this little exercise over time. And GQ will just bet to win uh, his 25 to one horses for the next decade and see what his return is. 
The GQ fund sounds like George Costanza's The Human Fund, if you remember that. Yes, it is. Call. Some listeners might remember that. All right, so let, let's go, because it's been a long show. Let's go into some common mistakes I see from people. Okay, first of all, I already mentioned one, the win percent. People worrying about hitting bets. I know. I go to the track sometimes with friends who are not really horse people, but they like to gamble when they're there, and they know I follow it closely. So I don't know if they think I know what I'm doing, but they think I know a little more than them, and I should know a little that um, I can help them. So they ask me about, you know, what I do and who I'm betting. And if they see I go 0 for 10, yeah, I guess it could be embarrassing if I go 0 for 10. Like, he's supposed to know what he's doing. Meanwhile, another guy's hit five races, even though he probably lost, uh, you know, close to as much money as me. So it's, it's understandable. People want to hit bets. They want to feel good about themselves. It's difficult losing a lot. It really is. It takes a long time to get used to being able to lose for a while uh, knowing that in the long run, you're going to be okay uh, by losing maybe in the short term. So you can't worry so much about your win percentage. It's more about making money or it should be than, than win percentage. Another mistake. Now this is both horizontally and vertically, but we're talking vertically using a favorite defensively. For example, uh, the race I'm going to talk about Sunday, I didn't like, there were four favorites in this race. It was like four equal favorites. They were all like five to two to seven to two range, four different horses in a 12 horse field. And Two of the favorites I kind of liked. One I really liked. One I liked a decent amount, but not as much. And then there were two that I, I didn't really love, but I knew they can win. I could have thrown them in my bets. I bet supers and triples and, and stuff like that. I could have thrown them in. Think, yeah, they can come in third or fourth. But because I didn't have, like I was keen on a, on a, one of the favorites, I'm, I'm like, why am I just throwing these words in? I don't love them. They're basically five to two, three to one. I don't need them. If they come in third, yeah. If I throw them in, I'm more likely to hit the bed. But Overall, if I keep using three to one shots, I don't love that much. Yeah, it might help me hit more bets, but I'm going to lose money overall. I mean, think about the math. Using three to one shots that you don't think are going to come in that often, you're, you're going to get killed. So using favorites defensively is an awful strategy. Um, there are times I can see, like if you're keying a 20 to one shot or 25 to one shot, and you don't want to get beat because this horse who's three to one you don't love might come in second or third. And you're like, oh, I'm totally leaving him out. Yeah, you can be too proud in that case. That's a problem I have more in the horizontals because I'll often take stands with long shots and single uh, price horses. And I want to take a stand in other races and I leave out a favorite that wins. And I have four to five and the only horse I missed was an eight to five shot because I thought he wasn't great value. And I miss out on a $5,000 pick five because of it. I've gotten a little better with that, including some. But uh, anyway, so using the uh, favorites defensively, I don't think is a, a, a good strategy at all. And then the last thing I want to talk about before we get into specifics is the over spreader. I, this is so not my style and it's more than style, but the over spreading, the more you cover yourself, the more likely you are to win, but the more you're spending on a bet and the more difficult it becomes to win long-term. So whether it's the favorite uh, that you're using defensively, whatever it is, just try not to spread so much, especially if you don't have huge prices. Like I said, if you have a 30 to one shot on top in a super and you want to spread like crazy in the third and fourth spot, whatever. Okay. Be my guest. But you know, typically people aren't doing that as far as uh, singling or king on top of 30 to one shot. So just cut down on the overspreading because it'll cut down on your investment. And if you are losing, you'll lose less. So then when you do win, you don't have to make up for as much. Um, meaning, you know, if you're losing $20 every vertical bet or something like that, you know, you lose five bets, you're down a hundred bucks. If you win the next bet, it's got to pay over a hundred to make money. But if you cut down on your spreading, so your ticket's only $10 instead of $20 after five races, instead of being down 
100, you're down 50 bucks. Now, if you win, you only have to make 51 bucks to be making a profit. So cut down on the spreading. People overspread. It's like a safety net. Uh, it's, it's, they want to have a, a winning ticket. They want to be able to brag to their friends, put it on Twitter or you know, show people that they won. And it's just uh, not, a, not a good thing to do. GQ, before I go into some specific examples of types of bets and stuff like that, was there anything you wanted to either add, ask, talk about? No, not, not, not at all. Go, 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 go forth. Okay, so I'm going to bring up um, Sunday. This was September 19th. So if you want to go out and check the chart or look it up, you can pause the podcast. September 19th, Sunday, uh, it was race 10 at Belmont. And I had an awful day up until this point. So I did my handicapping. And there were four favorites I mentioned. There was an entry who went off four to one. There was a, the three horse who went off at seven to two. I didn't care for either one of those. I didn't like the entry at all because they were most, I think they were both the first time starters possibly. Maybe one wasn't. Uh, and I didn't like one of them. And the other one, the first time starter, if they were both first time starters, one of them had like bad workout reports. And I think it was a long race, if I'm not mistaken. Although I could be wrong about that. I should have looked up the uh, distance. And I'm pretty sure it was. And I don't like first timers going long with that case. So I didn't like the entry at, at four to one. I wasn't betting that at all. The three horse, I said, all right, this horse can definitely win. It was a Barkley tank horse. I thought it would be the favorite. It ended up going off a close second choice at three to one uh, or seven to two, actually thir- technically third choice, but they were all similar. Uh, I said, all right, my notes on that horse were, if I need to survive, use the horse, but otherwise let's try and beat at a short price. Um, the other favorites were the eight horse at three to one and Barkley Tank horse, who I liked as probably like my second likeliest winner. And then the 12 horse, who was like five or six to one morning line, it was a Pletcher horse, first time turf. And, and I really liked the horse. If it can take to the turf, I thought it was by far the best horse in the race. The dirt races were incredible. The question like looked a lot better than they were. So the question was, could the horse take to the turf? And I forgot if it had a good turf workout or the breathing, or I just thought, I don't love anyone. I'm taking a chance on this horse. So, and that horse was Talis uh, as a Jew. Uh, Talis, if you know what that is, uh, can't hurt either. A little Jewish uh, name no. there. So 12 horse, five to two, he went off, even though the morning line was a lot higher. So, I like the 12. My initial impression was I was going to key the 12 as my main horse. I was going to put the 12 like first and maybe second in bets. And I was going to link him up with the eight horse, who was three to one. In the race. Now, I thought the 12 was going to be like five to one or something like that. So I was okay with that. So basically, I was going to do 12, five to two horse, with the eight, who ended up being three to one, with like three or four other horses I liked uh, for third and fourth in supers, for third in tries. And then I was going to move the eight to the third spot. So I would have my 12 horse over like three or four horses I liked over the, um, over the eight horse, who was three to one, my second key horse. So basically, I was keying two horses. The 12 horse is my main horse, and then the eight horse is kind of my second uh, key, not as much as the 12, put them in second and third. When I saw the odds on the 12 were going to be really short and the eight were going to be short, I said, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to link the two favorites. Three to one and five to two is too short for me, but I still really like the 12. So I didn't want to throw him out because I thought he was a little, um, you know, betting, bet a lot. So I kept the 12 on top. I didn't move the 12 around because I said, I'm just putting them on top. I didn't want to spread too much, putting them second, third, et cetera. There were three long shots in the race I liked. Uh, two horse was 12 to one, six horse, 17 to one, and the seven was 39 to one. So I had three long shots, one big long shot. I had the horse I liked a lot. So I said, all right, instead of doing 12 with eight with two, six, seven, 
I'm going to, I'm going to spread a little more equally. I almost actually tossed the eight, but I didn't luckily. So I've just put the 12 over the two, six, seven, eight in triples and supers. Um, and then I put the eight in third a little more because I liked him a little more. Uh, and basically I, I moved him around, but I needed the 12 on top. I didn't spread. And as a result of that, uh, I got lucky. The 12 won. I think the eight came in third and a long shot 17 to one came in second and 39 to one came in fourth. So I had the triple a few times. I had the super a couple of times. Well, a couple of times, a dime super a couple of times or a 50 cent super a couple of times, not dime. So it ended up being a lot of money, but that's just some ideas on, on how to bet. Um, you know, instead of now I could have spread, I could have put the 12 first, second and third because I really liked him. And I figured he's definitely coming in you know, somewhere there, I think. But I wouldn't have had as much with him on top. Now, if he comes in second or third, I get nothing. But the fact that I keep him on top allowed me to have more money on it. I forgot exactly what I had, maybe $2. It wasn't huge, but $2 triple and $1.50 or $2 super rather than just a 50 cent super and a 50 cent triple or something like that by moving them around. So that's where, you know, not just super spreader don't do, but, you know, if you have short prices, try not to move them around too much unless you have long prices, which I did, but I had two favorites in there. I didn't want to move the, the one favorite too much. So I want to talk about a, a race on Saturday. We're going to talk about race eight on Saturday as I lose GQ's interest over there. Sorry, GQ, I'm blabbing away. It's okay. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, multitasking, as they say. All right, by the way, did you look at, um, I know people don't care, and this is uh, unprofessional. Did we uh, see the results for Belmont race six uh, today? I did not. All right, I'm glance. Oh, they're running right now. All right, I don't know who I have. So, oh, I have the six, seven, or the six, something like that. All right, anyway. Sorry, it was a big pick six carryover. And uh, I, of course, I single out Rangers bet a four to one shot, despite our friend Tom trying to tell me that I'm nuts for singling him. But uh, paid $11 or $10. I always get my singles at that price. And then my next race, I only used three horses. It would seem wide open. I, sh I want to go deeper, but there's only so much you can do. And uh, maybe you should just, um, whatever you bet on the pick six, just load it up on your single. And you I should have in this case. Well, I had two singles in this sequence, and guess what? They're both about to win because the first one outrages bet one. Oh no, I spoke too soon. I have the six, who's only two to one, so I can't brag, but he's winning race six. So my two singles come in, in sequence, of course. This one's only a six dollar horse, the other one, 10 something he paid. Um, but yeah, I got my two singles, and unfortunately, we're doing the podcast, so I couldn't even bet pick threes right then because I didn't want to like you know, stop the podcast to make my best, but I would have had some pick threes going and stuff, but my key horses didn't win the last race. Anyway. All right. So let's go um, on Saturday. Now it is November. I'm sorry, September. I know where my mind went. Uh, September 25th. Race eight is part of the late pick five. Second leg is the first leg of the late pick four. So I think there's a race maybe people are interested in, and I'm not really going to get into the handicapping part because it's a long show. I just want to talk about the betting part. So I handicapped the race, and the horse that I liked the most was the three-horse Saratoga Affair for Chad Brown. I felt that he was in a speed duel last race with a horse who was six to one, who totally faded. Now it was probably against a little weaker. He was three to five in the race, so it wasn't the strongest race. The fact that he cost four hundred fifty thousand, they're willing to lose him for eighty thousand despite running fairly well last time. It's not that inspiring, but um, I still think that he might be the best horse in the race. So the horse that I want to bet in the race. If now I'm assuming also the morning line's accurate. If he goes five to two or two to one, my mind might change. But if the morning line's accurate, I like him. There are a couple of horses I really don't care for. The four is six to one. Now I've lost money betting against Kitten by the Sea last time, but I, I don't really care for him. So I'm leaving him out. And um, I don't really care for the nine. I'm not saying they can't win either one. He's also six to one, not a huge price, but you know, I don't really see him uh, 
winning this race or I'm not that afraid of the, the nine. So I definitely like the three the most. Now, looking it over, there's only three other horses I was interested in. Uh, and I'll go in odds order quickly. The 10 horse, Clara Peters at three to one. Uh, and there's a horse who had a great trip last time, but was off a year layoff, just so, literally almost exactly a year. And he should, or she should improve second out off the layoff here. So that's a horse I like. The eight horse in a hurry is steadily improving for Shug Mingehi. That's a horse I like. And that horse I find a little more consistent. I mean, Clara Peters needs to improve off the last race. Shouldn't second off a layoff, but I know the speed figure looks similar, but she ran a lot worse than in a hurry, I thought, last race. So, um, you know, I, I would think the eight is a little more consistent, meaning if I just needed someone to hit the board, I would trust the eight more than the 10. And the other horse, who I don't like as much as those two, but is the seven, Platinum Painter. These are worth two back. I actually didn't love the race. Uh, just saved every inch of ground. It was a merry-go-round merry race where it was just like they held one, two, three, four pretty much. Um, no one really gaining. And um, I think that actually helped him, but or her. So Platinum Painter, uh, that race I didn't love. But Lance race in the Boston Spa, yeah, you can argue wasn't even close, just tossed the race. But I thought the horse ran or showed a lot of life. He cha or she chased Tammy here, who was five to one in the grade two. And Tammy here is a solid horse, uh, I believe it's Chad Brown. Uh, and Tammy here was close, finished fourth. It was only like a length, she only lost by like a length. But to, to chase Tammy here, there's no Tammy here's in here. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, she faded the seven, but I thought that was a pretty good effort. So um, do I think the seven is as good as the eight and 10? No, but I think the seven has a decent shot here. So what would I do here? And how would I approach it if I were betting this? And I will bet this vertically, assuming, you know, the race plays out the way it is. No scratches other than the main tracks and uh, the, the morning line odds are accurate. I definitely like the three the most, and I'm keying the three. So the three is going to be on top for me. Now, I like the seven, eight, ten. Do I like the eight, ten better? Sure. But if I go three, eight, ten, I have the three favorites. I really have to be right in order to make money. Like, very often, if you bet the three favorites, even if I just keep the three on top and go three with the A10 and exactus triples and, and um, well, I can't do supers with three horses. Even if I did that, I'm not saying that's a terrible strategy per se, but you got to be right pretty often. I don't know what the exactor would pay. It wouldn't be terrible because, you know, $11 horse on top. But, um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I like to be right less often or have to be right less often. I like it where I can be wrong a lot because I am wrong a lot and uh, I only have to hit once in a while. So anyway, what would I do? Well, since the seven is the, the price here out of my picks, I'm going to try and get the seven in there with the three. So I'm going to key the three on top in triples. I am going to put the eight, 10 in second and the seven in third. Then what I'll do is I'll do uh, reverse a little bit. Three in first, eight, 10 in second. I think I said that in the seven and third. I already said that, right? I do the three with the seven in second with the eight, 10 in third. So three with seven with eight, 10, and then three with eight, 10 with seven. I'm not putting the eight and 10 together per se, because I, again, I have all short prices. Yeah. Would I win more? Sure. I could do it and just put extra on the seven. So if you really want to, you could, but I'd rather spend the more money trying to get the seven, the price in the mix. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong because I'm using the two prices. What I might do is I might move the three at nine to two to second in that mix. And again, I need the three and seven in there in two of the three spots in the triple. The other strategy I can see doing is the eight is pretty consistent in getting better in a hurry. So if I like the three the most, 
put him with the consist Pertar with the consistent horse, the eight, the eight horse. So same idea, but three with eight with seven ten, three with um, ten seven with eight. And yeah, I do have the three eight ten, but I have extra on the eight in there if that makes sense. Using him or her with the three. Now, if there were some long shots I liked, I would maybe add the long shots in there for third and fourth and a super. I don't want a super spread, but if I went three with seven with eight, 10, and then in supers, I can put the eight, 10 again in, in fourth in case it come in and throw in a couple of long shots. My thing is there's not many long shots I like. I don't care for the six at all. I'm trying, the four is not really a long shot. I don't count six to one. So I'm trying to beat the four. I don't like the nine. So I'm, I'm not using the nine at six to one. The five is eight to one, but I really don't like the five Bramble Queen. I guess the only long shot I would give a little look to is the two Amniarix, if that's how you say it, the motion horse, but I really don't care for that horse. So again, I'm not going to spread if I don't have to. So I'm not looking to spread that much here. And those are just like a couple ideas on how I might play the race where I like a nine to two shot. Would I bet win? Personally, I don't really, unless it's a big price, because what am I going to bet? 20 to win, 30 to win, and get 100 bucks back, 200 bucks. That's nice. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sneezing at that. I'd rather turn that into something else. So if I was going to bet, 20 to win on the three i'd rather bet a triple king than three on top and put 20 dollars into that triple three with seven with eight ten and then three with eight ten with seven and again i might not be right a lot i might not cash or i won't cash nearly as many tickets but i will make so much more money if i'm right one out of like 15 times i'd rather be right one out of 15 times and make a fortune than uh, having to be right more often to make the money so that's that's kind of the way i would approach these vertical bets um in here we had a long show. I was going to look at another race, but I, I think we'll we'll end it. Uh, we might talk a few more minutes about this race, but or, or vertical betting. But I'm not going to go over the the 11th race I thought about as well. But um, that that's just something. I'll I'll make sure as a habit we get more into this each week. We talk about the betting style and strategy uh, rather than just the handicapping aspect of the show. GQ, I, I don't know if there's anything you want to either state on what you think. Questions. I don't know if you're listening to me. You're no, I, I heard. I heard every word you were saying, and it was good, good information uh, from a different perspective that we've never um, talked about. So hopefully the listeners um, enjoyed it and, and picked up some tips uh, and, based on that. And if you are not following either one of us on Twitter, uh, GQ is at Horse Racing Nut, and I am at Bandits BB. So if you want, whether you follow us or not, if you want to follow us, but shoot us either a direct message or even just post it. Any questions you have, listen, I'm not the end all be all. There's people who make more money than me and GQ and, um, and all that. But I also speak to a lot of people and I become friendly with a lot of people who do make money at this game uh, as well. So um, it's not just my opinion. I bounce ideas off of these people and you'll get feedback from what I think, but also what successful people who I know are, are successful at this think as well. So feel free to reach out with questions about betting, whether it's horizontal, vertical, anything. We'd love to feature them and do more of that stuff on the show. So without any further ado, GQ, uh, long show, worthwhile show. Anything you want to add? I uh, just want to, uh, again, thank everyone for um, listening and um uh, taking part uh, in the show that was quite different than our typical show, but I think it was a good thing. Yep, and we'll most likely be back next week. I want to say Keeneland opens next week, so maybe we'll be there. Belmont might have a big week, but we'll definitely do some uh, 
big race uh, features next week. So thanks for sticking with us this long. Don't forget to support the aftercare community and good luck at the races this weekend. We hope to speak to you next week. Take care all.